Okay, I'm Alex Klein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Cano. Cano make build-your-own computing kits for kids. That's their co-founder and CEO, Alex Klein. And this is Move Your Business to the United States, the podcast for Mount Bernal advisors, the consultants who help you expand your business stateside. I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and we're talking to companies who've made the leap to find out more about their journey and any advice for those following in their footsteps into the US. Mount Bernal CEO Sebastian Sauborn will also be answering your questions, so send them over to info at mountbernal.com. You can also find that in the show notes. Now, if you have kids and you love computers, you may know Cano. They make beautiful computer kits for kids to assemble. The company was founded in 2012 after co-founder and CEO Alex Klein was set a challenge by his six-year-old cousin, saying that he wanted to make his own computer, but wanted it to be as simple and fun as Lego. Fast forward to today and they have a range of products, including the Harry Potter coding kit, which involves the use of a wand, and a frozen coding kit, which incorporates sensors. We caught up with Alex Klein to find out more about their expansion into the US and to delve into the unique retail market stateside. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about what Cano does? Sure. Uh, Cano is a technology company. The difference between Cano and most technology companies in the world is that you actually make our technology yourself. You make your own computers, you make your own applications and games and music. Um, it starts with a simple kit. You put the pieces together step by step. Um, a computer comes to life. A magic wand from Harry Potter comes to life. A grid of sensors comes to life. And then you use our software, um, which guides you all the way, like a game, to make interesting new things. And so Cano is for kids? Cano is for beginners of all ages. And you know we live in, a, in an age of great generational divide, and so I feel that a lot of under-13s resonate with what we do. And of course, you know, we've been really strong with kids. We've, we're at Target, Amazon, Best Buy, and perennially it's parents uh, picking up our products. But the spirit of the design process is the beginner's mind because like, you know, there are 20 billion connected devices in the world, less than 50 million people can code. So this isn't a question of kids and adults having different skill sets. This is a question of a small technological elite, a 1% of 1%, uh, being able to speak the language that uh, moves the minds of the masses and the rest of us simply swiping on these sealed sapphire screens. So the fact that it appeals to kids is beneficial like a Pixar or a Fable, but it's not necessarily the uh, exclusive target of our products. And can you tell about how the idea came about? Because that's quite an interesting story. Sure. Uh, speaking of kids, uh, the, <laughs> so the idea came about, uh, thankfully, um, not from me. It was from my little cousin, Mika, who was six years old. Um, me and his dad, Saul, who's my co-founder and also my first cousin, um, we discovered the Raspberry Pi, this little chipset in a lab in Cambridge. I used to be a reporter at Newsweek. I was reporting out a story on the Raspberry Pi, uh, this brain that hackers and hobbyists were sending into space and under the ocean and making all sorts of interesting inventions with. Mika picked it up, started to look at it. We introduced it to him and his idea was simple and he wrote it in his little notebook. I want to make my own computer, but it has to be as simple and fun as Lego. So no one teaches me how to do it. 
So that was the product brief, basically, from a six-year-old. Make my own computer, as simple and fun as Lego. Put that together, put it online, record-breaking crowdfunding campaign. Steve Wozniak backed it, Yancey Strickler. A year later, Boris Johnson, it's the election today, now Prime Minister Boris Johnson, well, now strengthened Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the time, mayor. He competed to build the product with Mike Bloomberg in a race during London Tech Week. And who won? Uh, it was Boris's team. <laughs> yeah, Boris's team won. Well, he's a bit younger than Michael Bloomberg, right? So yeah. there we go, you know, the age division, yeah. Yeah, he got it done. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then what, ha what happened next? Yeah, Prime Minister Theresa May picked it up. We ended up um, in U.S. retail, which is subject to this podcast, I think, and um, spiraled uh, out from there, like, you know, it's, sensors that you build yourself, screens that you build yourself, a magic wand with Warner Brothers that lets you cast spells on a screen and then code your own spells. And then this year we did uh, uh, kits with Star Wars and Frozen that let you use the force and use magic and then make your own powers from those franchises. So the whole idea comes from Mika, making technology so simple and fun, no one has to teach me. So you guys founded in London in 2012, I think? Yes. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'm wondering, um, and you are half American, right? Uh, uh, well, I, I, my mom is English and my dad is South African. I okay. was born in the UK and I moved to the US when I was nine. So okay. then I moved back. So I spent about half my life in each place. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, why did you set up in London? It was a consequence of circumstance, really. It's, I was at Cambridge. I was doing my master's degree. I was uh, still reporting for Newsweek as a freelancer. I met Eben Upton, who's the inventor of the Pi. The Pi was growing. Open source hardware was growing. Um, saw my cousin uh, was working out of London. His son, Mika, was there. I met my co-founder, Jonathan, an Israeli guy. Um, in London as well. We met this amazing dude from the PlayStation 4 team. We brought him over, this ingenious designer, Swedish guy um, from a town called Westeros, interestingly enough, or Vesteros. Uh, he joined the team. So it was like a, just a melange, like a, a heady brew of, of European oddballs and misfits who had been kind of kicked out of or left other professions. Um, and... We all just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right backers, and and uh, we put the campaign online, and and it it flew. So uh, we're still here today, although most of our sales are in the U.S. Most of our uh, our sales are are not in the U.K., even though we are. Yeah. So you guys opened an office in the U.S. two years ago. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So our first physical retailer was Toys R Us. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so good old Toys R Us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they've been resurrected now. Interestingly really? enough, no, yeah, I didn't the, know the brand has been bought by some other retailer. I think it's called Beta B A T A. Um, so we were in Toys R Us uh, with the original computer kit. It looked on the shelves of Toys R Us like some kind of art project. It was like this super minimalist, like orange box with this like punchy graphical components set and it just said two let two words on it like three actually cano computer kit and it did well there was a screen kit there as well also around it were these like you know pour slime and you know braid your hair with uh, electricity all this crazy stuff I and mean, there was just this simple statement so it did well we ended up getting into target our walmart best buy and in 2017 we were really anywhere 
physical products are distributed um, for a kind of you know young or or middle class demographic in the U.S. and that at that point we set up a small office in Boston. We've since um, decided to put the office in Austin, um, and we have a great team there. And why why Austin? Austin kind of comes down to our our leader in the U.S. A guy called Alexander Mitchell, beautiful soul, amazing professional, genius mind. Came from Amazon, still famous at Amazon for what he did there. He set up their first physical bookstores. Um, super cool, cool and interesting and dynamic um, leader. And so when he moved from Boston to Austin, um, we set up in Austin. How many people do you have in Austin right now? It's to be about four people, yeah. And so you talked about this kit being on the shelves of Toys R Us and doing really well. Um, so how did it end up there? Were people from the U.S. demanding Keanu kits? Were, did you kind of set out to conquer the U.S., so to speak? How did that, or maybe a mix of both of them? Well, the, the original campaign was got a lot of traction, like press coverage, and it went sort of viral, and it was supported by lots of people. So we were, we were known in the U.S. We had U.S. investors after that. We raised Series A. And, um, you know, I think the American culture is that of the tinkerer and the experimenter and, and the, the garage startup and, you know, the idea of computing that you make, like really, people really got that in the U.S. right away. So I think even from the beginning, we were we were in the U.S. through our own e-commerce platform and through Kickstarter. Um, we, uh, yeah, that's all, that's all I have to say on that. So this is an interesting point because I feel um, STEM in general is, I feel like a bit, a bit more of a thing in the U.S. compared to the U.K. So I'm wondering, do, has that affected um, the way you market your product or the way you kind of get the word out there with Kano? I think that, customer who, who who goes for Cano tends to do their research and look into the features. And I think it, you know, it's never really been a, a goal of ours to appeal to like a specific type of person, even if that type is American, you know. And maybe that's like contra- business gospel, but I, I feel that the spirit of what we're doing just inherently is like anyone can make. And so we we work to tell a story that could be comprehensible in any culture and language and, and geography. And I we, we get it wrong all the time, of course, like, you know, always making mistakes. But um, I think in America in particular, like everything is cultured, everything is conditioned, everything has its sort of biases. So the fact that I moved from England to the US when I was young and I, I kind of fell in love with the US and the, the freedom of expression and the constitution and the history and the founding moment and Alexander Hamilton and that whole dynamic maybe has something to do with the reason uh, the products have particularly caught on in the US. Um, that's a good question. And let me just add one thing there. You know, there's a lot of conversation always about or debate when is the right time to go to the US? You know, mm. some people say, don't go too early because it's going to kind of bankrupt you. Other people say, you know, you can also go too late. You know, often it's better to go early. I mean, I think it depends on what you're selling really and what, what the product is. But so what was your, what is your thought on that? Um, so I think we went when there was a genuine need to. I think that that was helpful 
because we I, we live in this moment where no matter where you live in the world, you can find out about almost any product or service almost immediately. And so you don't actually have to physically be in the region to sell there. Now, if you already have customers, if you have already have interests, you should then go fish where the fish are and and develop that that channel. But it's almost like you need that little seed of interest and you can probably do that on the online first, which is what we did. So that that may not be true of any business. If you're in maybe more of a, a services business, you wanna you wanna be there so people can get a taste for what you can only do in person. But I mean our experience was really one of just scaling up, knowing that we needed some really strong people in the region to be in conversation with the retail partners to support customers over Christmas because we have a huge spike in activity over Christmas, as you as you noted. Yeah, and um, we, had a, we had a great person go and set up our office there, Greg Stein. And um, from there, we we continued to to grow. We're still in, you know, we're still in every Target. We're um, we, we work with Amazon in Seattle. We have different sales reps in different regions. Um, but I, I think just on the experience, it was very surreal the first time I walked into that office in, in it's Framingham, just outside of Boston, Mass. And it was an office that hadn't been set up by me, right? Um, but it was beautiful. Like it was like really light and airy. And it was in this old uh, sawmill and, you know, it had been nicely decorated and the team there had their own cultural identity which was similar to ours back in London but not exactly the same and it was definitely an uh, we've arrived moment you know that's when I really felt we had arrived and you know we keep arriving and to any entrepreneur who is looking at expanding into the US um, if there's a real need for it yeah definitely do it because despite the the poor reputation that uh, American politics has fairly uh, American culture is still the world's primary uh, influencer definitely yeah I agree with you the American maker works for tomorrow as well as today and he has a host of new products in store for us some of them ready for immediate viewing some of them are visible in the nearer distance, while others yet remain a dream of the future, but all of them on their way to us. Oncoming, attractive, useful products. Automatic highways with cars and buses that drive themselves. Battery-powered, transistorized TV that is really portable. Panel TV to hang on the wall like a picture. All these and more and more. We Americans have always been makers. And in the beginning, we had to be. When America was young, we learned how to make the things we needed because there was no other way to get them. We worked with our hands. And our hands served us well. At the blacksmith's forge and the potter's wheel, we learned honest craftsmanship. At the spinning wheel and the loom, we studied patience. And the greatest patience most of us learned was the patience to see to it that what we were making was good. Then, looking again, 
to make sure what we had made would serve and serve well. So you talked about walking to this office. So the person who set it up, Greg Stein, I think, yeah. um, was he part of the team in London or was he a, a local? And what, how did you make that decision? We met we met Greg. Um, he was working at another London-based kind of creative company. And, um, you know, he'd been doing... I'll just pump Greg now if anyone's listening. You know, Greg's great. Like, he's no longer <laughs> with us. But, like, you know, if you want to go to the U.S., he's a good guy to work with. Um, and we met Greg. We started working together. He was like, listen, I can, I, I know the right people at Target. Let's go talk to them now. Like, I can help you with Toys R Us. And and we had tons of adventures together, flying around, you know, visiting different distributors, different, visiting different retailers, visiting different schools and, and even governments, setting up a CES, you know. Uh, we did a great CES last year. Um, so, yeah, you got to find someone you really trust and, and enjoy and with re- limitless reserves of energy to, to do that because it is a lot of travel. The U.S. is a big country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how important is this boots on the ground to, for expanding? I mean, I think it's it's probably less important than it was in the past, but the but the world is growing far more winner take all and bipolar in terms of the distribution of outcomes. So, if you see an opportunity to do any business at all in the U.S., like a business that could even be twenty twenty five percent of your annual run rate, then take it because it may expand well beyond that as it did for us and and put, make you the prime mover in your category. Um, the UK, and it will introduce you to other, like, you know, investors and potential partners. The Harry Potter wand that we ended up making last year, which was a you know record-breaking product, top electronic learning toy of the year on Amazon, that product came about because one of our American retailers introduced us to Warner Brothers. So, you know, you never know where things are going to lead. And, you know, if you have the opportunity to go west, young man or woman, as they say, you should, for sure. Now, you, you I think you said before, I've understood you correctly, that the, the product is doing um, better in the US than in the UK, for example, or in Europe. Is that, why is that, you think? Well, we're only in English, so you're, so Europe is not, is not open to us yet. Um, although we do have a lot of interest. In the UK, we do sell, um, but the US is just so much bigger. It's just a much it's just the size. It's just the sizing. Yeah. yeah, it's just a much bigger market. Um, we're also in more physical retail in the US, and I think the fact that our product has this beautiful design and you, know, you go into the store, you pick it up, you touch it, you feel it, like that is really helpful. And how did you fund the expansion? Oh, we raised venture capital. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I mean, with any with any fundraising process, you explain your, your thinking to the to the investor. You uh, you you make clear to them what their funds are going to be used for. And I think in our case, especially 2017, 2018, we had such clear demand online. People wanted us in store. Uh, it was kind of a no brainer, and we ended up doubling revenue that year. Is that not a very common thing? Often uh, when you when you raise funds to expand to the US, that basically once they see that you have some traction there in the US, it becomes a lot easier. Yes, yeah. So we. So basically, you you should demonstrate kind of that you can do it, and then it's just about economies of scale. You yeah, have more fun to scale up. And we brought our bill of materials down as we scaled the the volume up as well. So we were able to get more margin out of the products. 
Um, but raising money is is always something that you should do on the back of momentum and on the back of some achievement, but with a, a a new achievement in the crosshairs, which is kind of counterintuitive because people have an a, a tendency, I think, everyone um, to settle in a bit and get complacent after something strong has been achieved. Whereas in a money raising process, you have to keep your hunger up uh, as you build momentum. So you have to be endlessly hungry. So Alex, I wanted to know, um, what is your advice or your do's and don'ts for companies who, who want to expand? I would say if you want to expand, still in your planning and forecasting, adopt the personality of one who is not as interested in expanding. Like, because it's very uh, risky to set a massive target or goal for yourself um, on the back of a bet or a hypothesis and then, you know, find yourself falling short, which can happen to companies that go to the US. So, you know, we, we actually, the year we doubled revenue, we had forecasted going even beyond that. So what should have been like a great moment of victory felt like not that. You know, it's the tyranny of high expectations. So I think that's a really important one. If your business is in a place where you have an opportunity to expand, don't necessarily bake it into your financial forecast right away. Like, go go for the expansion operationally, but in your financial forecast, assume a sort of steady run rate. Um, and then you can blow everyone out of the water, right? Keep a low uh, profile, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm wondering, around the time that you were expanding, um, did you seek any advice from people who'd done the expansion or who had some experience? Because I'm wondering what what pearls of wisdom or any kind of cautions they gave to you. Well, Greg, Greg was always really good on this, which was, um, you know, you've got to speak to, and I was always resistant on this, and I probably still am, but like you, you've got to remember that the American retail consumer, but there is just a truth to it, which is like when you're, Acquiring customers online and you're speaking to people through your own website where you can control the message 100%, it's just a different conversation to when you're on a retail shelf and you have um, other boxes around you or um, other Im- inputs and influences. And the American customer is different. You know, We can't neglect that there are some cultural differences that should be taken into account. Um, and that was good advice I was given at the time that we implemented um, in some ways, like on the packaging. I think the first round of retail packaging we did for the computer kit went from the hyper-minimalist Toys R Us with the three words on it to one that was slightly more descriptive but still beautiful. And I thought that was a nice blend of like artistic um, desire and purity with mainstream commercial requirements. Um, and you, you've got to like walk that blend in the right way because you go too far down either direction and Either you just have a like a really pretty thing that can't sustain itself, or you have something that um, also can't sustain itself because it's artistically hollow. Um, so you've got to be uh, walking that path very carefully and retaining your independence even as you scale. Um, how is the U.S. customer different? I think the U.S. customer is faster to decide, more optimistic and futuristic, more, uh, yeah, I think I will stop there. I think you get fast decisions, you get, people are much more willing to buy into 
an idea, I think, in the US. Like it's, you know, it's the frontier. It's the, the, the joy of scientific discovery. It's the, the revolutionary spirit. It's, you know, the harsh fought political arena. It's a place of productive turmoil. And I think people are slightly less cynical when somebody comes with like a, a, a wild new idea in the US. Although I think that's changing. I think that's evening out around the world. And what, what would be your biggest pearl of advice to someone who's, you know, thinking if they should make, make that expansion? Expand if it's right for you. I mean, big, bigger isn't always better in business. Sometimes it's better to, to stay in a steady state. You know, and and talk to your team. You know, don't just make the decision alone. You know, talk to everyone on your team and and make sure everyone's clear on the plan because it will create, you know, operational stresses and strains. And I think, you know, we were fortunate that we had a good blend of like creative, entrepreneurial beginners and also experienced folks. Um, and we we really talked to everyone and we we succeeded in expanding. Um, but it's not always going to be easy. So make sure everyone's on the same page and wants to do it with you. Just on that point, I just finally wanted to ask, um, did the expansion change how you were doing things back in HQ here in London? Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, we, because we were now thinking about the the retail buyer's point of view on our products or the Hollywood studio's point of view on our products. And, you know, in some... I mean, it's like a tale as old as time. It's like, how do you retain your autonomy and independence and spirit while reaching larger and larger numbers of people? And when you go to America, all of a sudden you are in a much bigger pond. And so I think in a lot of ways it, it created a desire for, for the company to prove itself, which was very productive and healthy. And I think it also created um, a pressure on the company, which was the question of, well, what will retail think? What will the studios think? And as we've come through that phase, we're in a period where because we've faced down and negotiated with and introduced our stuff through some of the biggest corporates in the world and it's worked and we're still here and innovating, I think we can be even bigger while being even purer to the original vision. Well, yeah, and I need to get one for one of my kids for Christmas. I think it sounds all great. Cano.me, deals on right Right. now. (laughs) Get it right now. Shipping window almost cuts off. (laughs) Buy, buy, buy. Consume, consume, consume. You just heard from Cano's Alex Klein on this edition of Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bernal Advisors. I'm Nastjan Tavakoli-Farr, and you can find out more about Cano at cano.me. We've also put that in the show notes. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn, and Nevena Panovich is our podcast manager. We use some samples from the Prelinger archives, who have some really cool historical material from the US. We'll be back in two weeks with more from another company who've made the move. Send us your questions to info at mountbonnell.com. That's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L dot com. And you can also find that in the show notes. Okay, we'll speak to you soon.